as you can tell this morning, we're going to wander our way through helping uh, somewhat get a handle on reading and interpreting the prophets. But let's pray first. Ask the Lord's help. Father, you're kind to gather your people at any time, much less so regularly, and we're, we're grateful to gather around the name of Christ, your word through him, and we want to we want to be a we want to be Bible people. We want to know as much and take in as much as we can stand. And we ask that you'd help us with any and all tools that that you deem beneficial. And so, thanks for brothers and sisters throughout church history who help us to that end. And ask that you'd give us another dose of that this morning for your own name. Amen. Well, besides me, uh, this is a safe place. Who else gets turned around when you read the prophets? Show of hands. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. Um, join the club. Uh, they're, they are easily confusing. Um, easily, eh, could be frustrating at times. Uh, Eugene Peterson writes in a, a great little book, Working the Angles, reading scripture accurately and understandingly is one of the most difficult tasks under the sun. Gilbert Hyatt, the classicist, used to say that anyone who reads the Bible and isn't puzzled at least half the time doesn't have his mind on what he is doing. So if you find yourself a little bit turned around, especially in the prophets, then that's good. That means you're, you're digging a little deeper. Uh, they're not written necessarily to be easy. They are written to be provocative. Uh, this may be somewhat helpful. This is how Jesus understood. This is how any, any good Hebrew would have understood the division of their, their Bible. Uh, our Old Testament was according to the Tanakh, and that's playing on three letters, a T and an N and a K. Uh, the first, the T, is the Torah. We all know what that is, the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus understood the division of his Bible, the Old Testament, according to one section was the Torah, uh, the other section was the writings, the, the ketuvim in Hebrew. We derive our letter, the, the K from Tanakh in that. Uh, Ruth Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, a lot of the wisdom literature jump, uh, lumped into there. And you'll see at the bottom of that list is Daniel. So Jesus would have understood Daniel to be a part of the writings. Okay? Now you know the law and we know the writings. What's the third section? The prophets. Now we, we know it rhythmically as the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so in the New Testament, we'll see that referred to. Those are the Old Testament divisions for Jesus and any uh, other good Jew. Uh, they understood the Old Testament according to law, the prophets, and the writings. For them, the Nevim, that's where we get our in from. Now, for the prophets, for the Hebrew, would be Samuel. Kings, Joshua, Judges, those are all considered prophets. We don't treat them like that, but they understood. Those were part of the early prophets. And for them, the later, and for Jesus, this is how he understood his Bible, the latter prophets are our typical Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12. So what we call and consider minor prophets, they lumped all together, and still do, to the 12. Now what's missing? Daniel. Okay, so we, in the sort of English Western tradition and, and beyond, we lump Daniel in with the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
Daniel. And so we're focusing in this session on that circled part, that these latter prophets. And they're not, uh, they're latter because they're written later in redemptive history in the Old Testament. And we understand major versus minor prophets, not because the, the minor prophets were under 18 when they wrote, or that they were less important. They're just shorter. They're one, two, three chapters worth. And so they're just considered, they didn't write as much. Okay, so they lump all the 12 into the minor prophets. This is how the New Testament understands the division of the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Yeah, the law of the prophets and the writings. <clears throat> I, to, to what degree I might help anyone, uh, when folks ask about interpreting the prophets, almost the first thing I encourage us to do is to remember three dates. If you can remember three dates, we can make a good sense of the prophets and they're not as intimidating, okay? After Solomon, you remember this, after Solomon, the kingdom divides, due in large part to David's sin with Bathsheba. You have the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, Ephraim, Samaria, those are all ways the Old Testament refers to the northern kingdom. How many tribes are up there? Ten tribes situated in the northern kingdom. That leaves two in the southern kingdom kingdom the Levites are sort of spread out mainly up in the north and in 722 Assyria conquers the northern kingdom takes over occupies uh, Israeli lands etc takes over houses and such so if we can remember 722 BC and there's there's a cluster of prophets that that God raises up before each of these dates so before the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom in 722 BC God sent Hosea Amos maybe Joel maybe Jonah but certainly Hosea and Amos to tell the northern kingdom you better repent or I'm coming or bad things are going to happen if you don't end your idolatry and such okay now you have the southern kingdom that's Judah and a little little bitty tribe of Benjamin and Jerusalem is in Judah who lives in Jerusalem, eventually, David. And that's where the capital of Judah is. And so the ten tribes in the north are considered traitors. They're not with David. They set up an alternative worship centers, alternative liturgies, alternative worship sites, alternative kingship, the whole administrations. They've left David, and the southern kingdom is uh, still pledged to David. So in 586, Babylon conquers the southern kingdom. So what's the first date? 722, if we can remember that, we know that there's a cluster of prophets prophesying right before then to the northern kingdom. In between 722 and 586, God raises up a, a number of prophets to prophesy to the southern kingdom. Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Ezekiel sort of uh, stretches over a little bit of 586. He goes into exile. Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. God raises up these prophets to prophesy, for the most part, to the southern kingdom, telling the southern kingdom, you'd better watch, did you not see ju what just happened to your brother? Do, do you need any more evidence that I'm serious about my word and worship? So he raises up this cluster of prophets to prophesy to the southern kingdom, telling them, you'd better repent too, or what happened to 
Israel's going to happen to you, Judah. So 722, if you can remember that, and you can remember 586, you now know, okay, I know there's some prophets that are situated right before those dates with a certain purpose to warn nation, the nation, uh, maybe some surrounding nations, about God's judgment, impending judgment. This is a little bit messy and a little too simple. Uh, Babylon takes over what were otherwise Assyrian lands and territories, and so what happened to the northern kingdom with Assyria sort of gets swallowed up by the Babylonians when they roll through town. They're trying to get to Egypt, frankly, and take it over. And so Ezekiel sort of spans. I was down at the river Kebar, right? And so he he's spans both before and after 586. And then there's some prophets, Daniel, Obadiah, during the exile. So what's the first date? 722? 586, 515. If you can remember those dates, you can remember a good part. That's, a, that's going a long way at situating the prophets and understanding them. So during the exile, so Babylon has conquered Jerusalem, taken all the smart, sharp guys out of there, Daniel being one of them, scattered them around Babylon because they don't want to cluster up any rivals to their authority. They want to retrain the sharp Israel kids. Uh, for Babylonian purposes, that's pretty smart. Mili like, rather than spend military and spend a lot of blood and resources, why don't we train them to work for us? And that's what Babylon did. During the exile, you have Daniel writing. Obadiah is writing. Okay? In 515, as God promised, God promised Jeremiah that was going to last 70 years, and then he's going to raise up a new nation. And he raises up the Persians, and the Persian kings let any Israelites that wanted to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. So 722, 586, 515. If you can remember those three dates, it goes a long way at situating uh, the prophets. In 515, a number of Israelites go back. Not all of them. Daniel didn't. He's an old man by then. There's some folks who just, that's all they ever knew was Babylonian life. So comparatively, only a few Jews went back and rebuilt Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the second temple. Now there's another cluster of prophets. Joel, maybe. Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, those are all second temple, Judaism, second temple prophets. So if we can remember, 722, 586, 515, you can situate the prophets right around there, and, and you'll know, go a long way about where they are and who they're prophesying to. That makes sense? Is that helpful? And and um, a, a lot of times we get turned around because we're like, I don't even know what in the world, who is he talking about, and w when is this? Well, just remember those dates, and you'll, you'll be pretty confident of, uh, in, in what the prophet might be saying. Uh, Duval Hayes provide uh, some interpretive difficulties for the prophets. One is, it's an unfamiliar genre. Uh, we're familiar with songs and stories and poetry. Those are, we can pick up on the proverb. We can pick up on those pretty intuitively because we have those, some version of those in English. We run across those kinds of genre uh, in English. We don't have something comparable to the prophets readily available. In so we're not, we don't read a whole lot of English literature that's prophetic. And we pick up on what prophets are about when they write. 
So it's unfamiliar genre to us. That's why we struggle often to interpret it. And they are non-linear, and I'm using this word, anthologies, especially the major prophets, the Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're long, and, and those, are, those are like many, M-I-N-I, sermons over 30, 40, 50 years. Isaiah did not sit down and write 66 chapters overnight. This is a compilation of what he preached for decades. So it's like an anthology, like we have the sermons of Calvin on Joe. We have the sermons of Spurgeon. This is after the fact. This is many, many years of ministry. Those longer prophets are like that. And so they're not, and they're nonlinear. We think that way. We're a little more Greek thinking that we want two to follow one and three to follow two, and we want this to lead to that, and the buts and the therefores and the whereases and what have you. And the prophets don't write like that. They sort of swim in a circle. They're, they're not one after another and consecutive, and we read the prophets and we're like, wait a second, he said this four different times already. Or, what, what, where, where are we now? Well, we're in the same place. He's still saying the same thing, maybe to a different generation. But he's saying the same kind of thing. They're still guilty of the same kinds of sins, etc. Uh, so we often struggle because we, we want them to be consecutive and they just don't write chronologically or systematically. Okay? I felt a lot of freedom. Uh, this is the quote from Duvall and Hayes. Outlines of the prophetic books are normally useless. I mean, I almost got saved again when I read that. Like, man, that is so freeing. Like, okay. Have you ever sat down? You're like reading Isaiah. Okay, I'm going to get Isaiah down. And I'm going to try to get this thing outlined. And you're, you're halfway and you're like, I don't even know what. I'm, I'm so turned around and twisted now because he said something eight different times. Well, yeah, good. Uh, that's the way he wrote it. Uh, it's not supposed to be that clean. And we can feel some freedom in, in feeling that tension. Is that helpful? So uh, do you resonate with those difficulties? Have you run across those? Perhaps others as well. I think those are fair. Here's some interpretive assumptions. So, these, so we've, we've talked about a couple of hurdles. Here are some assumptions, things that we can be confident in. Um, and this is classic um, stock uh, help here in understanding the prophets. Um, in understanding their, the difference in their ministries between foretelling. So when we think prophet or prophetic, our gut, our inclination, our impulse is, is to think, what do prophets do? What do you think? What, what's, your, what's your reflex? They tell the future. And that is not their primary ministry. Okay? The prophets, they, they do some. But the burden of their ministry is not for F-O-R-E telling, telling things before they happen. It's forth, F-O-R-T-H, telling, meaning telling what's happening now. So not telling the future, but telling what is happening in the present, not what will happen, but what is happening. That's the role of the prophet in Israel. It's to say, will you look, it's, to hold up, it's not to hold up a window and say, let's look down the road a bit. It is to hold up a mirror and say, do you not see what we're doing? <laughs> do you not see that this worship is useless and it's futile? Do you not, it's ex exposing the heart uh, behind uh, rituals and things like that. And that's very helpful. That's often why, uh, if you've been around folks, and um, 
and a dear, dear brother, uh, I, I use this illustration all the time, I was sort of co-pastored with down in, in Texas, and he had, I don't know how to, I want to be careful, it's sort of small P prophetic tendencies or gifts or something. He, he's a guy that you could, he could say, hey, how's it going? And you tell him, oh, I'm doing fine, and within three minutes, he's drilled down into your heart and says, ah, here's what's happening. This sort of, he can read this what you're saying and knows questions to ask. That's what the prophets do. I know this is what it looks like on the outside, but, but let's get into the heart. And they're able to define things, and that's what the prophets did for Israel. And the prophets wrote, and this is helpful from what Jordan went through last week on poetry. The prophets wrote emotionally charged poetry. Uh, the prophets were like uh, Bob Dylan, like protest songs. Seem to really grab your attention and sort of shock you, and they're provocative, and they, and they're intentionally that way. Every word that the prophet writes is an invitation to the imagination, to the sounds and colors and smells and tastes and textures of, of God's emotive power and His judgment and His salvation. The, the prophets write intentionally to provoke. They're inviting us to, to uh, inviting our imaginations to explore all a, uh, aspects and angles to the power and judgment and salvation of God. We, we know this uh, just from understanding poetry in Amos three eight. Why, why say that that God has spoken forcefully when you can say a lion has roared? Have you, a lion has roared. Have you? Uh, been at the zoo or any zoo but at the Memphis Zoo this only happened once I kind of catch the lions or something at a, at a right time and I remember sitting there and there, is the, there was this low rumble that was like, like taking the breath out of you and that was one of those lions sort of I mean he wasn't roaring he was just kind of hiccuping and it was so powerful that it shook on the inside and I thought a lion has roared that made me think of the prophets that's what it does. Why, why say God has spoken forcefully when you can imagine a lion roaring like, oh, that, that's what the word of Yahweh does. It sort of jiggles the gut. Well, why say God's judgment is eternal when Isaiah can say their worm will not die? What do worms eat? Waste. And for Isaiah to say the worm will not die is to say their judgment is eternal. There will be no end to the judgment of God. It, it does something to you when you think of worms eating forever. That's, that God's judgment is eternal doesn't quite provoke. That makes sense? The prophets, this is from uh, Deval Hayes, the prophets serve... As, our, as the Lord's prosecuting attorneys, exposing sin, inviting to salvation. Um, those things that Israel tried to hide and hide from God and hide from one another, the prophet comes along and holds up the mirror and says, we see it, God sees it. Here's what's happening to you and in you. There are three R's uh, to the prophetic message. This is generally what the pro all the prophets are about uh, in a variety of different ways, a variety of different symbols and images and metaphor, 
but this is generally uh, what they're calling for. One is repent. Every prophet's calling for repentance. They're holding up a mirror. Uh, there are things wrong in the nation, and we've got to change them, or else God's coming. A few things they ought to repent from. One uh, is sin against the covenant with God. Israel was guilty of syncretism. You know what syncretism is? Someone give that a shot. Syncretism. S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Yeah, mixing of religion, mixing of gods. We don't have one god, we'll just have three or four gods, and they sort of all, we all sort of situate them and fit them into our life, and one does this and one does that. We'll take what's best. There's nothing new under the sun. And so, well, I'll take what's best from Hinduism. I'll take what's best from Buddhism. And I'll take some stuff from teaching from Jesus. And somehow I'll construct my life. That's syncretism. Israel was guilty of that. Uh, Both nations were guilty of that. So they are uh, repent from sinning against the covenant with God. God demanded exclusive allegiance. He provided an exclusive mercy and salvation that they would offend the prophets often called that spiritual adultery. Sin against the community. It's not only a vertical sin against God, but they sin against one another. Their idolatry spilled over, expressed itself with sins against one another. Israel had become, either before 722, around 586, uh, they'd become functionally Gentile. You're doing what the Gentiles do. You're doing what Egypt does. You're no better, you see. No matter what name's on the back of your jersey. And they ought to repent from ceremonialism. The nation thought that they could get over on God with bare ritual. Well, we'll just do the stuff. We'll make sacrifices and take the bulls and the goats, and God's happy with that. Wink, wink. Uh, and they thought they could hoodwink God, um, as though he were one of the false gods who could be manipulated or tricked. And the prophets come along and say, you, you have to repent. God sees like, God doesn't even want the sacrifice. I love the Psalm 50, not in the prophets per se, but it's a prophetic psalm. If God were hungry, he wouldn't tell you. If God needs a sandwich, he'll make his own sandwich. You don't need to feed him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He'll go make his own cow and burger, you see. That's what the prophet exposes. So, one R is Repent. Uh, there's recompense, so failure to repent would invite God's judgment, so repent, stop all of this, or else Assyria's coming, Babylon's coming, etc., and do all manner of bad stuff in the nation. And restoration. Duval Hayes used that word. I might, I might press that word through the cross and replace it with resurrection. So I think there are this sort of cycle of uh, repentance and recompense and resurrection, those sort of restorations in the nation, I think are precursors to resurrection, bringing life from the dead. The promise of restoration assumes repentance. It assumes covenant renewal. Uh, and that various forms of restoration uh, had, had near, historically near fulfillments and distant or far fulfillments. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, for example, the second temple that Israel rebuilt in Jerusalem because Babylon had destroyed it, uh, Solomon's temple, now they're rebuilding it. 
anticipates the new temple made without hands. You see, these are all little precursors to resurrection. Covenant renewal anticipated the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, for example, um, plays prominently. Those three are, so what are the three dates? 722, 586, 515. You sort of get those settled in the mind. You can plug the prophets in somewhere around those dates, and they make a whole lot more sense. What are the three R's? Repent, recompense, restoration, or resurrection. You can plug in whatever words you think you can remember there, but uh, whatever synonyms you want, but those are helpful. Uh, need to hustle, don't we? What about those predictive passages? So that the foretelling, uh, obviously the prophets do some of that, and they're important. So what about those, can we say? Uh, I want to offer there are three prophetic horizons. So when the prophets are writing, there are three horizons that they're anticipating. Okay? Uh, and this is stock illustration, stock imagery um, of using using a mountain range, and so if you're, a, if you're a long way from the mountain range, the mountains look right on top of one another, don't they? You, you think from a distance, I can walk from one to the other, but the closer you get to the mountains, what do we find? My word, those, what I thought was just right next to each other are now, they're miles apart. They're a long way apart from one another. This is the same with these prophetic horizons from 722, from the 8th century BC or 6th century or uh, hundreds of years prior, the predictive, uh, the prophetic horizons look like these things are going to happen one after another very quickly. But the closer and the further, the further along our predictive history you get, the closer we get to the ultimate fulfillment of those predictive passages, we find, oh, there's a whole lot of time between those that we didn't know, to, we didn't know until we got closer to them. That makes sense? So there are three prophetic horizons. One is the return from exile. Whenever the prophets write, 8th century BC, 725-86, and around 515, the return from exile was a prophetic horizon. The prophets are looking forward to the end of the Babylonian exile. Okay? Another prophetic horizon is the arrival of the Messianic kingdom. In the prophet's mind, when we return from exile... Messiah comes and establishes the kingdom. Now, the closer they get to it, and they return from exile, and they rebuild the temple, and it looks terrible compared to Solomon's temple, now they're starting to think, oh, well, we thought Messiah was supposed to show up, but every generation goes by, and we find he hasn't come. And you get to Malachi, the last prophetic word in the Old Testament until John the Baptist, essentially. 400 years pass. What we thought was close is now, by the time we get to the New Testament, 400 years in the making. That makes sense? The third prophetic horizon is the consummation of the Messianic kingdom. Um, for the prophet, all of those from the distance look like those are going to happen very quickly. Once one starts, the others are going to come right after it. As history unfolds, we find there's a whole lot of time between them. So, for example... Uh, this is um, in Matthew 24, 1 to 3, that you know, Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple complex, and 
the disciples look at the complex and say, this is just absolutely awesome. Is there anything else like this in the world, Jesus? Aren't you impressed? And what does Jesus say? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure there's not one stone left. On, you, you think you're impressed with this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it down just like that. And not one stone is going to be left on another. And when, then we get to Acts 1.6. This is after all three years with Jesus, death, burial, resurrection. They've been with Jesus a while. And in Acts 1.6, the disciples asked Jesus, do you remember what they asked him? Is it now you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking prophetically. Because they're thinking, oh, we return from exile. Messiah has come. Therefore, it's all happening. We all get our land back, and we get our kingdom back, and we get our king back, we get our temple back. It's all happening right now. And they think, okay, Jesus, we've sort of gone along with this, and now must be when it's going to happen. And what does Jesus say? No, you're going to be my witnesses, etc. Acts 1.8. Uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and most parts of the earth. They find out, oh, the return from exile the arrival of the Messianic kingdom, and now the consummation of the kingdom are years, eras apart. That makes sense? So when we read the prophets, it's okay for us to think, in the prophet's mind, that's why we can read Messianic passages in the prophets, and it seems like Isaiah chapter 7, we use it Christmas. You know, a virgin's going to have a child, and that's a, that's a right Christmas text, but we know, only know to apply that at Christmas. Why? Because we're on this side of everything. When Isaiah's writing, that's happening in his mind very quickly, and Zerubbabel does have a son. So there are near fulfillments, and there are distant or far fulfillments from the prophet's perspective. And it helps to tease out uh, what those might be. Okay, any... Quick questions, comments, thoughts, ideas? What are the three dates? 722, you can just remember 8th century B.C., it'll be fine. 6th century, 586, 6th century B.C., and 515. You know, there's a group of prophets all before, around those dates, uh, giving essentially one message, which are those three R's, which are what? Repent, recompense, restoration, or resurrection. Uh, you want to tease that out a little further. Anything at all? If not, someone want to pray for us, and when you do, I'm sure we'll do this in the service too, but uh, pray for Tim. He's over stuck in Baptist East and... Uh, no one hates being there more than he does. So uh, when you pray, pray for Tim and Pam.